Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show today, it's a stateside special as we ask, has Trump been dumped by Murdoch? Emma Tucker looks set to swap editing the Sunday Times for the Wall Street Journal. The BBC prepares to export its brand of impartiality to America. And we get some special insight on the hot mess that is Twitter. Plus, we talk RuPaul, the small screen, and reality TV with producer Fenton Bailey. And in the media quiz, we discover who's causing a social media chaos. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, the BBC marks 100 years since its first ever broadcast. To celebrate, an online index of early broadcasts has been released from 1922 to 1923. Ahead of the launch of its streaming service ITVX, ITV has rolled out a rebrand. Notably, its flagship channel ITV is now ITV1. Jane Stiller, ITV's chief marketing officer, commented, This is all driven by a future where both broadcast and streaming will be equally crucial parts of how viewers engage with us. After the arrest of three journalists covering the M25 protests last week, the Hertfordshire Police Chief Constable Charlie Hall has personally apologised and commissioned an independent review of the arrests. And Guitar World Cup organisers have apologised after a Danish television crew were forced off air by security. The World Cup announced that they were mistakenly interrupted. An apology was issued and activity allowed to resume. Neighbours, the iconic Australian soap, will be revived by Amazon less than four months after it looked like we were waving goodbye to the residents of Ramsey Street. Neighbours will resume filming next year and stream on Freevee, Amazon's ad-funded video service for users in the UK and beyond. But on today's show, we're turning our gaze across the Atlantic. First up, we have our US media politics specialist, Karen Robinson. Welcome, Karen. Hello. Uh, you're joining us from a conference today. Can you can you tell us any more? <laughs> it's the EMEA Strategy Summit for Edelman. So uh, there's a lot of strategy happening around here, all around the Europe, Europe, Middle East and Africa. The outputs of this strategy conference will surely be rolled out in our clients' communications over the next 12 months. It's where the magic happens. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're sort of talking shop for a few days between colleagues. That is the plan. <laughs> also with us is uh, Newsweek's Alex Hudson. Hello, Alex. Good morning. Good morning. We were just admiring your setup, and uh, that's due to music. Uh, you you want to plug your band? 
Oh, I get told off for plugging my band on this podcast all the time. I will <laughs> happily you? plug it. No, yeah. Well, I'm in so charge today. Jake, yeah. <laughs> Excellent news. Uh, the band is called No Alexander. Our debut EP called Once the Secrets Out is on all good platforms. And the debut album comes out next year. There you go. Shameless Brilliant. to begin. Well plugged. <laughs> I'm told here that you have a newsletter in the works. So it seems like you're busy. Can you tell us any more about that? Uh, so Infinite Scroll launches next Tuesday. So if you go to newsweek.com forward slash newsletter full plug uh you can sign up to infinite scroll it's all about where technology intersects with social policy philosophy and business so because no lawmaker particularly not in the u.s really understands tech in a way that they can legislate on it so what happens when web3 hits what happens when ai becomes real ai and not fake pretend ai and it's just an algorithm how do lawmakers deal with that and what is the what are the ethics of some of the challenges that technology is about to encounter all in one newsletter every week, every Tuesday. I'll be signing up. That sounds fascinating. Let's let's crack on with our first story. There's been a reported breakup between Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump after the Republicans' disappointing performance in the midterm elections last week. Karen, let's, let's go to you first. So Murdoch's dumped Jerry Hall. Is is Donald Trump the latest <laughs> divorce? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, he's, a, he's a fickle lover, is Rupert Murdoch. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the support of Murdoch's entire empire for the Trump project, I think, was never about a personal affection for Donald Trump. It was a belief that his particular set of ideologies could be well served by um, telegenic, media-friendly personality and his willingness, his excitement to see someone who's willing to push harder right policies in the White House. When that doesn't look like such a winning proposition anymore, I don't think either of these two men have any personal loyalty to anyone else. So he's now pushing hard for um, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida as the kind of supposedly safer and better bet for Republicans, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. I think obviously there is no Democratic candidate who enjoys the full-throated support of any particular media empire as an individual. So whether whether Rupert Murdoch is able to do for Ron DeSantis what he, uh, what he helped to do for Donald Trump remains to be seen. And how are we sort of seeing this this divorce play out? What what's actually happening? So it started as these things often do with snark in the New York Post, which is a Murdoch-owned um, tabloid outfit in New York. It was started by kind of putting Ron DeSantis on the cover of their newspaper on the day that Trump was wanting to announce his uh, his candidacy for president and then starting to be, you know, snarky about Trump personally, which um, Mar-a-Lago is rumored to be furious about. And then, of course, you'll see it. Fox News is an interesting one to watch because obviously, you know, Trump made a lot of his political stake in the ground was on Fox News. And Fox News still is, you know, making positive noises about Trump's. But Trump himself has been very anti-Fox News for a few years now, because he's been trying to go all in on more right-wing networks like the One American News Network, which hasn't really taken off very much. But he doesn't think Fox has ever been supportive enough of him. So he's, he's trying to shift to other media networks, which hasn't really worked. But there's still... I mean, I would not rule out Donald Trump just yet because he still commands the fervent loyalty of a minority of very enthusiastic Republican voters. So it's not enough to win an election, but it's certainly enough to make trouble in a Republican primary. So it it will be interesting to see how it transpires from here. 
Absolutely. And Alex, how have you been sort of looking at things from Newsweek's perspective? Are you, have you been following the story? Uh, of course. I mean, it's it's our bread and butter and we've sort of mm. spent so long on trying to work out exactly what's happening and why. And so the things that we found was actually the, the, the key thing that was happening for election night was this politicking of polling data. So, we, you know, we were hearing all about this sort of red wave and all of this huge shift to the Republicans. But what's what happened there was the poll of polls, so traditionally by far the sort of fairest way to understand the whole picture, was actually gamed by right-leaning pollsters. So they polled much more frequently and so that meant the poll of polls was actually off-centre. So Biden had the lowest polling rating, 41% of any recent president, including Trump at this stage. And it's meant to be the case that unpopular presidents lose seats. And so the thing that we still don't know is why this is. Why, why is Biden somehow shifting this? And so the exceptions to when an unpopular president hasn't lost. Vox has done some incredible journalism here, so I'm paraphrasing them. It was Roosevelt in 34 after the New Deal, JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Bush after 9-11. And what Vox argues is that Roe v. Wade and the abortion is as big a issue here as 9-11 as all, all of the other ones that I covered. I don't think that's necessarily the the truth, but I think that that's a really interesting potential answer. I think it's more about... And we try to really focus on individual races. So, you know, Republican Carrie Lake, Democrat Katie Hobbs in Arizona, Fetterman versus Oz in Pennsylvania, Kilday versus uh, Young in, in Michigan. And it's all about individual candidates. So what we kind of thought was about voters choosing against specific Republicans. And of course, there's nuance to this. And of course, there's all manner of things going on, but it's about candidate quality. And that had more of an impact than many thought it would. So the, the reasons, you know, Oz, for example, is a key example where people on the ground there were saying that anybody but Oz would have probably won that election. I think you're absolutely right, Alex, that there was a flood of polls immediately pre-election from right-leaning polling outlets. Um, some of those outlets, by the way, have had very good in past elections, so it's not that they're necessarily garbage polls in themselves. Um, but what I find most interesting, even with that influx, even if you want to say that maybe there was a, a thumb on the scale there, the polls were still not off by as much as the punditry. Um, the, there was a meter strongly put out um, in this country too that the democratic loss that democratic losses were inevitable. Now, whether that was them upweighting, it was going out, and and they went to the New York Times and they said, "We think this is going to be a blowout for us." And the New York Times just reported that as a story. Um, I think and I, I, I Andrew Neil um, of the Spectator fame, who wrote a, a very confident article on November fourth, so four days before the election, just not even saying it's likely that, but saying it will be a Republican blowout. Um, and he's never really back and reflected on what caused him to think um, to think wrongly about that. So I think Hundred was just all off from a combination, I suspect, of Democratic jitters and Republican overconfidence. To what extent is some of this coverage an overcorrection? Do you think clearly the likes of the New York Times have been quite honest about the fact that they got it wrong on Trump's journey to power? Do we think that this has been? response to that and perhaps an over response to that no it it's more about so the media loves a grand narrative like karen was saying so we love that the, the election could come down to the roe v wade issue or it could come down to the recovery of covid or it could come down to this one big thing and without getting too nerdy about it how the media can react quickly to the fact that each individual race is increasingly becoming more nuanced about specific issues and so the media 
we love saying actually Roe v. Wade is or is not as a binary the key thing in this election, or we we want to find this thing that actually the Democrats, you know, did Biden win? Yes. And is the thing that the media is still catching up with? Or, you know, did Trump lose? Yes. And so it's that next bit of how the media catches up with it. So it's not that the media got it wrong. It's that we're still in the the last gasp of the sort of social age where the most polarizing lines are the ones that share and the ones that travel and the ones that the the pundits will react to strongest so for the 2024 election you know we're going to move from the facebook generation to the tiktok generation which will be a fascinating thing by itself because a lot of a lot of republicans including desantis has some really strong views about how tiktok is regulated or even banned in certain right-wing bits of the republican party so how the media responds to social media or how social media responds to the news is is how 2024 plays out i think for the most part we covered the midterms pretty well. The fact that Fox was the first to call a house for the Democrats shows that actually people are more and more willing to take risks here and make sure they are absolutely factually spot on. And Karen, just to just to think about that sort of traditional media and, and what might change between now and 2024, we're seeing efforts by Murdoch to weld back together News Corp and Fox Corp. And what, what could that mean? I mean, I know you've suggested that Fox is perhaps increasingly sceptical about Trump. Could this mean it gets worse for Trump in terms of his Fox News coverage? Yeah. So you've got to think about the Republican Party and Donald Trump as two different things who happen to intersect some of the time. Now, Donald Trump could be the Republican Party's worst nightmare in the next election, because if there is a competitive primary, and by the way, I'm not sure Ron DeSantis wants to enter that fray. I think Ron DeSantis would like to be president, but does not want to go into a knockdown drag out fight with Donald Trump. So how the media covers Donald Trump is has always been as a celebrity rather than as a politician. And they still cover him that way as a look at this outrageous thing he said today, right? Um, whether whether to win majorities, both in the primary and in the presidential election, but if he just wants to be a disruptor, he has a lot of capacity to do that on his own with his own privately owned platform, which nobody except his supporters follow, but they do follow it. Um, so I think it could be really ugly. And I think that Fox News would struggle to get any, you know, to, to create the kind of clarity that perhaps they might like in this situation. So We'll see what happens, it, but it could be it could, it could be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating what you say about the, the cult of celebrity around Donald Trump. And the, I know we mentioned this earlier, but the New York Post, the day after his announcement of his candidacy, they ran a headline, Florida man makes announcement. And Maggie Haberman, of course, who's the peerless New York Times political reporter, said that the biggest wound Trump can suffer is people not saying his name. Alex, that, that resonated with me. What do you make of that? Will, will Newsweek be not uttering Trump's name or? <laughs> the whole thing around Newsweek is freedom to disagree. So our point is that we might, we, we, as, as long as someone is being factually coherent, we are keen to promote, you know, so the, the difficulty with the US debate has always been hyperpolarization, And so how you get onto common ground, how you deal with nuance, how you deal with difficult topics like abortion like uh like uh, free speech there is a lack of nuance so our job is to try and bring back nuance and, and provide difficult opinions from both sides about this issue because that discussion which has been slanted by the punditry on on major u.s networks how 
we're about to see a snapback at some point. Nobody nobody knows when it is, but a lot of media organisations are betting that the truth eventually will win, or at least, you know, difficult discussions and open debate and how that ties in with free speech, which Elon Musk is shouting loudly, then banning anyone who disagrees with him. How you actually get free speech in a, a really sort of, you know, you, you, you argue and you discuss, you don't fight. And that's how Newsweek tries to cover it in a, in a balanced way and, a, and more importantly, a fair way. Okay, let's stick with the Murdoch empire. Uh, Semaphore's Max Tarney has reported that News Corp executives expect Emma Tucker, who's editor of the Sunday Times, to take on the top job at the Wall Street Journal. Tucker would replace current editor-in-chief Matt Murray. Karen, what's your take on this story? Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that she was considered for the position before, four years ago. Um, she was interviewed for the job at that time, and the the, the the journal has gone through gone through a different type of leadership. I think the Wall Street Journal is a is a wonderful publication in many ways. I have a lot of respect for the news coverage that the journal has done, but I think there is this disconnect between its editorial line and its news coverage. I think having a Brit come in to actually run the paper at this time might be good. It might get away from this sense of polarization within the paper itself and and allow them to just focus on delivering the excellent coverage that they're famed for. So yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that this might be a good move for the paper and for the for the coverage. It's I mean it's in fine fettle, isn't it, the Wall Street Journal? I was looking at its most recent financials. I mean revenue up by more than a quarter to five hundred and sixty five million dollars, you know, three point one digital only subscribers. It turns out people with a lot of a lot of money still like to read about their money. <laughs> Alex, I mean, just just from a UK perspective on this story, I mean, we've got uh, you know a new editor at the Times in Tony Gallagher, and you know if Emma to a leave, that that would mean that the there would be a new editor at the Sunday Times. Is that that kind of change that that amount of change in 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 a short period of time a good thing, or is it too much upheaval at once? It's neither a good thing nor a bad. It depends who they bring in. We're still in the midst in the UK specifically of like no one's quite sure about what the next phase of journalism will be. Like no, so you know you bring in old hands in Tony Gallery and and you then look at how many. If you look at perhaps the the most interesting papers, are Ollie Duff at the Eye, who's doing some genuinely brilliant work. He's by far the youngest national editor, and I wouldn't necessarily call him a digital native. We're still lacking that sort of digital first thinking to come in. You know, I think Kath Viner has done a brilliant job at The Guardian, but that's a slightly separate case because that always was digital. No one's come in and sort of turned a paper into something that you could sort of see as a digital first operation. The eye is trying, it's not quite there yet. And then you get into that push-pull of modern digital of, you take Murdoch's view, which is very much page view focused. So, you know, if you look at the way the Wall Street Journal is still doing the sort of SEO pieces around, you know, how to watch the Super Bowl, and you combine that with, you know, how, without going to stop me if I get too in the weeds with this, but the idea of how that begins a user funnel. So there's a brilliant bit of Oxford Reuters research about the fact that if you come from search, on average, in UK media, only 32, 33% of people even remembered that they had visited your site. So how much does search matter and how much does your content matter? Uh, matter so any of my consultancy I'm always talking about this idea that as a publisher you are an orchestra so 
the triangle might only be heard once, but that is as important as the cello. So people might come and hear, like come and pay for the piano, but actually what they stand up applauding for is the cello solo. So how can you make sure that you have a coherent brand or else you'll sound, you'll have terrible notes and everything will sound off key and people will come in at different times. If people come and listen to an orchestra, they expect to hear a coherent piece of music and that's what every publisher has to do. And so if you're trying to go for page views and subscriptions and affiliate revenue and this and this without like to Karen's point without having that clear brand narrative alongside it you struggle because the users don't know what you stand for they come from search they come from social they come from dark share which is increasingly important and they leave without even knowing that they were there mm. having only recently left uh, the times newsroom i can tell you that emma was held in very high regard and uh, was seen to be achieving a lot of that balance that you're describing there. I mean, rumours about her going to the Wall Street Journal have been sort of running around for months now, and I know she'll be much missed. But um, let's stick with America, shall we? We've got in about you know 22 minutes into the media podcast, and we haven't mentioned the BBC. So let's put that right <laughs> and just talk briefly about an interview that Nia Nielsen did with Press Gazette. Nia Nielsen is the BBC's digital director. BBC News is digital director, I should say. And she's saying that... North America is a major growth opportunity, both journalistically and financially, for the BBC. And there's a real appetite for trustworthy information. How strong is the BBC's presence in America currently, um, Karen? Pretty strong, I would say, actually. Obviously, it's a fragmented media market anyway. So, you know, nobody can be said to have dominance anywhere. But I think the BBC as a brand is very well respected. There's BBC America that has a streaming service there. So pretty well respected. I think the news is, is well regarded. Even kind of online, you find a certain number of people in search will wind up on BBC, BBC news articles. So I agree with the perception that the US is a, is a compelling media market for there. And there's a prestige associated, not just with news value, but with the dramas and to a lesser extent comedies. However, I think it will also have to consider carefully the polarization that we've been talking about, where the media marketplace in, in America is becoming increasingly polarized. So I think they will struggle to get to accrue listeners and, and viewers from every part of the political spectrum. There is a Fox News audience that is loyal to Fox News, and then everybody else is all to play for. Nielsen was talking about sort of exporting the BBC's brand of impartiality. Alex, do you think that that could be a, a good thing, a, a popular thing? I'm going to be way more sceptical here. The BBC is exporting <laughs> its business plan uh, into a market where it can make money from advertising. So it just so happened that they started looking for the new editorial executive. So they got one from NPR and one from NBC Universal. They look really, really strong. And it just so happened that it was almost to the week, just as Nadine Doris came out and talk about freezing the license fee, then abolishing it from 2027, albeit, you know, we've had two different governments since then, but nobody knows the next stage of that negotiation. And so, you know, it's 226 million profits on sales of 1.6 billion in last financial year. And the license fee being unknown just so happens that we're going to hire more in US, where, which is our most lucrative market by a significant distance. And to Karen's point around the idea of like being trusted, the BBC is, is globally trusted. But you know, if millions of Americans think the election was stolen without evidence, how that translates into engagement and rational discourse without alienating people like all of the Fox News and on the other side, you know, the MSNBC viewers or the New York Times readers, the BBC is going up directly against the New York Times sort of reader for reader. And given the implied bias that many Americans believe the New York Times has, means that the BBC risks being really quickly tarred with that liberal brush. And then 
it's, that's a different fight altogether. It has already. I mean, just to, uh, you know, the, the Trump has already lumped the BBC in with uh, with the New York Times and Co. Hasn't he? Trump's lumped everybody with everybody else. I mean, Trump. <laughs> if Trump can bash Fox News and CNN and uh, had a, he had he had a go at Newsweek a few months ago, he's indiscriminate with his criticizing of the media and what he sees as fake news. So Trump himself isn't the problem. It's how what Britain sees as the center is not what America sees as the center and how Ameri- and how BBC senior leaders deal with that balance is to put it politely tricky. Yeah, I think there is also that there's a behavioral issue in terms of viewership. So if you look at the people, you know, at Edelman, we talk about trust. We know that trust in media overall has been declining in both the U.S. and the U.K. In the U.S., trust in media is low on both sides of the partisan divide. But on the left of the partisan divide, people consume a broad range of media. On the right, they're more loyal to their media brands. So the BBC risks that they're competing for potentially a smaller winnable audience And that audience is already consuming lots of other media, so they won't be able to dominate it. So just from a commercial point of view, it's still a big opportunity, but it might not be as big as, you know, a Fox News opportunity where they can dominate a part of the marketplace. Uh, This week's deep dive also took us stateside. I caught up with LA resident Fenton Bailey, one half of World of Wonder, the production company behind the drag race empire. Fenton shared recollections of reality TV in 1980s New York and his first ever impression of RuPaul. Randy and I were at film school and it was so hard to get into Hollywood. We had this marvellously naive idea that if we made if we formed a pop band and had pop records and hits, (laughs) we'd use the money to make movies. I mean, I don't know why, I don't know what possessed us because uh, I cannot sing, I cannot play an instrument and I really can't dance. So I sort of, but I've always loved pop music and I've always loved the package and the whole idea of it, especially, especially British pop. And so Randy and I, Randy can sing and can play an instrument. So I say, yeah, you'll write them, you know, we'll figure it out. So we were busy being unsuccessful as would be pop stars. And we were performing in Atlanta. And that's where we met RuPaul. And Ru actually introduced us, came out on stage and introduced the Pop Tarts. And after the show, we were like, oh, my God, RuPaul is so, I mean, it was just, it was so obvious, like, Ru was the star, and we were not, you know? And one of those rare moments in life where you see something with absolute clarity. You you describe that in the book, don't you, in your introduction, in fact. Mm. Um, Could you have seen the show and RuPaul having this sort of global resonance in the way that it has become? No. Uh, is the simple answer to your question. That's very honest. <laughs> I mean, honestly, no. I mean, for the first couple of seasons of Drag Race, we were pretty sure we were going to get cancelled. Um, Logo was a small network owned by Viacom. And, you know, it wasn't really, didn't really have ratings. And it was difficult getting advertisers. So in every respect, the show wasn't successful, other than the fact that it had really strong word of mouth. And I think maybe it was just the budget was small enough and the network was small enough that no one thought to cancel it, you know? 
But when you think about it, the kind of problems and challenges that drag queens, the queens talk about on the show, you know, homelessness, addiction, rejection, bullying, these aren't problems that are exclusive to LGBTQ. And so for that reason, I think they're universally relatable. And Rue has always said, you know, you're born naked and the rest is drag. I just think it's one of the great truths of our time. You know, we are all born naked and everything we do put on ends up being a statement about our identity. You know, the sweater I'm wearing or the glasses, you know, it's like, or your jacket. However much thought we put into it, it's a choice. And as such, a statement about who we are or how we want to be seen. And so I think drag is also a universally relatable idea. How do you assess the health of reality TV at the moment? We talk a lot about big budget drama and, you know, big, uh, you know, true crime documentaries. And But there is also a real appetite for reality TV at the moment. Is it in a good place or have you have you seen better? You know, it's it's very hard, isn't it, to talk about reality TV as one thing. It would be like trying to say, is classical music in a good place? You know, it's so broad a church. I do think, though, over the years that we, what has happened, and this I think is a good thing, is that some of the highly constructive, highly constructed and aggressive formats of setting people against each other in sometimes a, a quite cruel way, I've seen those sort of fall away. Even in competition formats, you end up also seeing, which is really a sort of camaraderie between the people in them. And I think that's a really great thing that we're certainly seeing in in Drag Race too. And I think reality TV will always be, I, I sort of think in a way it's the killer application for television. So I think it's always going to be percolating and reinventing itself and refreshing itself. And so I suppose if there is a regret, it's sometimes that the the appetite for innovation can get a little bit, you know, there aren't always enough chances for new ideas. You know, I think the algorithm, just, you know, if anyone of us, you know, the algorithm doesn't, you hear it far too much. And I think the algorithm is kind of, bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Because the algorithm is telling you what people have watched. But that is like looking in the rearview mirror. It doesn't tell you what's ahead and it, it never can. But it does discourage innovation because a platform like Netflix depends on a massive amount of viewers. And so if the algorithm says, you know, no one's going to be interested in this, it's going to be very hard to make it. And yet time and time again, it is niche ideas or very specific ideas that explode. I don't think anyone ever thought Squid Game was going to become the huge thing it is. And Drag Race, in its own way, I, I think people didn't expect it to grow. But it was very specific and didn't really compromise. It wasn't trying to be all things to all people. And I think when when TV shows do that, when they don't try and be all things to all people paradoxically it's when they can be the most popular that was fenton bailey patron supporters of the show can hear the full interview with fenton including how he discovered graham norton his take on reality tv and more from his new book screen age 
look out for Screen Age at your local bookstore or online. It's time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this with a segment on Twitter. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And we're back with our Media Masters for part two. And we have a special guest joining us to tackle the latest at Twitter, a sort of weekly update on all things Elon Musk. Sam Hodges, who was previously head of PR and communications for the tech company. Welcome, Sam. Cheers, Jake. Good to see you. Thank you for coming on. So, look, I just sort of want to ask you a sort of really sort of broad and basic question. I mean, you've left the company a little while ago, but. Clearly, you have affection for yeah. it still. What's been your take on everything that has happened in the last few weeks? <laughs> I think it's just it's chaos, sadly. And Twitter has always been a chaotic company. You know, it's always been a company that's probably, weirdly, a lot bigger than the sum of its parts. If you go to San Francisco, you go to the offices, there's a load of really, really good people who are doing the right thing. And that's, you know, it's a difficult beast to wrangle, this so many issues it is very much live to everything that's happening in the world now i know some people think twitter's a microcosm and maybe it is but it influences so much and that i think has generated a purpose for a lot of people who work there they know what they're trying to do what's happened now is kind of the opposite i think fundamentally people probably can't even answer why musk has bought twitter i don't think he's answered that question and from a comms perspective if you don't have a, a stable ground, even that level, everything else is going to be difficult. And their comms team, which I think was globally around 80 people, which sounds a lot, but if you think about the myriad of languages and issues that covers, it covers policy, B2B, sales, consumer. You know, there's only two of us in the UK. There is a lot of incoming. There's going to be coming from you know, journalists like you guys that's going to want to understand the problem. Now you've got a real gap there. There's a vacuum. It's fantastic for the naysayers. They've got a live stream of consciousness from the man at the top who seems to be unpacking 
unpacking considerations in real time, like freedom of speech. If you want to be an advocate, if you are an advertiser that's got big bucks to spend to promote your Christmas ads, I'm not sure when you can't, be, you can't guarantee what you're going to wake up on the next day. I'm not sure that's going to do much good for them. World Cup is around the corner. should be the biggest moment for Twitter. I think instead you're going to see a lot of the difficult conversations around Qatar, how that's going to be handled and how that's going to show up. It really makes it what they would class as, you know, not a brand safe environment. Interesting. So it turns out that inventing and articulating policy in 280 characters is probably not the best idea. <laughs> Where do you think it goes from here? I mean, look, a lot of people are talking about the end of Twitter. People are obviously migrating to to other social platforms to to you know cr- try, and re- try and recreate what they see as the best of Twitter. Do you think that this is the beginning of the end, or can it recover from here? It feels too big to fail in terms of its part of the. Um, kind of the ecology of news and of how information gets disseminated in real time. And that's for me is the biggest worry. I don't think it will necessarily fail quickly, but the trust and the faith people have in it might. And that's the biggest problem because, you know, whether you wake up in LA and you think there might be an earthquake or if I you know, didn't get up in time to watch the Cricket World Cup, Twitter's a place I'll go to get the real time stuff. It's often quicker than say, I don't know, the official website. And so I suspect what might happen, I really hope it doesn't, but some of the joy could be sucked out of it because a lot of people, it does represent, and I know there is a lot of issues around trolling still, but there are a lot of communities for whom they come together and show perspectives I don't see elsewhere. And you learn, you see this joy and this education. I think some of that might go away. I think Mastodon and people like that, I don't see an alternative at the moment that fulfills the same function. I don't think it's necessarily massively complicated, but Twitter just has a relationship with real time that I don't think anyone else has right now. Yeah. Let's bring in Karen and Alex. I mean, do you, has the joy, or is the joy, going out of Twitter for you no. guys? Alex, do you want to start? I I made my career from Twitter, (laughs) so I am obviously a huge advocate of it. You know, I I set up Question Time all those years ago, and that became this monster. And so I'm obviously a huge advocate of it. But I think, to Sam's point, there is no one to take that section of the market. The closest is probably Snap. So if Snap rejigged it a little bit and started looking at Snap Map and a more public-facing and text-based feed, Snap is the only one that realistically could do that. But... Twitter isn't necessarily too big to fail, but the people on it are too important for it to fail. So as much nonsense has gone on about the blue tick, the now the new official tick and every other tick that has been added or removed or will be here and then gone tomorrow, the, those people with blue ticks, both commercially, if you're a celebrity or if, you, if you're a figure, you make so much money from these posts and also the credibility of journalists, as glib as it is, those blue ticks around important information and reputable information is still a vital part of the news infrastructure and even though the audience relatively speaking is small on twitter and the number of people posting is even smaller the impact of what is being posted is huge both policy-wise government-wise and and journalistically important karen i just just want to sort of bring in a bit of news from this week elon said said on wednesday that he wants to eventually bring in a, a chief executive to work under him and to run the show 
Who's going to want to do this job? Well, under Elon, not many. If he were smart enough to understand that he needs to absent himself from the day-to-day runnings of this business, then I think it's an attractive role. Like Alex, I'm I'm a, a huge fan of the platform. I use it all the time. I have made fantastic connections through it. I value it as a community, as a space. And I think I want to give a huge amount of kudos to the team who's been running Twitter up until this point, because they've been on such a learning journey to understand what does free speech look like? You know, how do you enable people to have a conversation where without abuse and hostility and harassment, they've been working really hard to create an environment where people with diverging views aren't immediately shut down, where vulnerable populations are not targeted. And I think these are all movements towards trying to create a platform in which speech can be meaningfully free. It's a much more complex and and useful understanding of freedom of speech than this idea that let everything happen and see where the chips fall. That's that's not true freedom of speech because then you've you've made it impossible for certain people to make their voices heard. And I think Elon Musk is has not been on that journey <laughs> to, to say the to say it in the politest possible way. Now, I, I think that buying it for especially for the amount of money that he paid for it was a huge mistake. I think it was a huge commercial mistake. I don't think there was ever any prospect of him even breaking even on that investment. And I think that what you're seeing is a lot of financial panic of the realization that that's true. Now, I work in agency land and I've worked in advertising before. I work in PR now. But one of the things we often have to do is advise clients which platforms to advertise on. In Calm's world, Twitter is absolutely wonderful. It's a great place to engage with journalists, etc. But we're not spending a lot of money on the platform. We're using it as a tool to reach the people we want to talk to, engage with them in meaningful conversation. I think the value of Twitter is enormous, and I think it would be hard to replace, certainly Mastodon, although like everyone on my feed, I've, I've now got my backup Mastodon account. I don't think there's anyone else who's going to be able to fulfill that same role, but I don't think it's ever going to be a profitable role. I think Jack Dorsey probably had it right, I think about a year ago, when he said that the best future for Twitter might actually be thinking of it as public infrastructure rather than thinking of it as a commercial enterprise. We, we could probably talk all day about Twitter. Um, so I just want to ask Sam a, a final question on this. Let's let's imagine a scenario where you're still at Twitter and you've got Elon Musk's ear. He, he, he trusts you, okay? What are you saying to him right now? I think the best comms advice at right now has to be to stop tweeting, ironically, to the CEO of Twitter. But <laughs> he is creating, he's creating jeopardy. And I think at the moment, if you can't provide the answer, what you can do is provide some form of stability. And everything seems incredibly reactive. The internal emails giving people X amount of hours to decide whether they stay or go. As I understand, yeah, I don't think people have much detail on what they're actually signing up to there. That people are externally and internally are trying to work out and second guess him and that's, he's making that situation harder. I think the other point I'd add, bringing to what Karen was saying, he's very much approaching all of this from an engineering point of view. I don't think Twitter is. I think engineering is what keeps it afloat. It's the content, it's the people, and it's his role in life that makes it important. The engineering should almost be seamless. It should almost not be seen. And I think that's, for me, the fundamental problem right now. Quickly on chief executives, look, everything is a long shot, but look at what Nick Clegg might be doing. Look at what Nick Clegg is doing at Facebook. 
it, Nick Clegg is a stabilizing force. It, everything is a long shot, but it, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say that name out loud. And then if it becomes true, I look like a genius. It's not going to happen. It is so unlikely to happen. But if it does, it Nick Clegg really is the new clever. CEO for Twitter. You heard it here oh. first. Well, Alex is breaking news. Very. <laughs> So unlikely. Can't stand it up journalistically. <laughs> Can't stand it up journalistically. Purely so I look like one of those people who predicted the future. It's not gonna. It's not likely. Probably not going to happen. Just taking a punt. You could have that as one of your predictions, your media <laughs> podcast predictions for the new year. Uh, and we and we hold people to those, Alex. So look, you did hear it here first, and uh, <laughs> I think it's a good shout. I think stranger things have happened. Clearly, um, Sam, we've got you on the show, so I'm afraid you're going to have to be part of the media quiz. It's a okay. it's a media podcast tradition. We do it every episode. Ask the three questions. If you know the answer, you've got to buzz in with your name. That's really critical. Okay. So, uh, Karen, you will say Karen. Sam. What will you say? Sam. And finally, Alex. Alex. Okay. So question one, uh, which British comedian issued David Beckham with an ultimatum this week on Twitter? That was Joe Lycett. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us a bit more? Yes. He challenged David Beckham to um, forfeit the, I think, 10 plus million uh, pounds that he's getting from the Qatari government to be their ambassador on the ground, on the pretty solid grounds that, you know, Qatar is not necessarily fantastic for LGBT rights and David Beckham is a gay icon. So he's going to either donate the 10,000 to LGBTQ charities, should David Beckham uh, forfeit his money or shred it and thereby shred David Beckham's reputation as a gay icon. It was a real like hostage video threat. (laughs) And we haven't, I don't think we've had a response from David Beckham. Not that I've seen. No, it was the most glamorous hostage video I've ever seen with his sparkly jacket. I loved it. It was it was it was great fun. Um, I'm just reading through the questions, Sam. And all of them are Twitter related, so no no pressure or anything. No, okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Two. Which, which pharmaceutical giant had its stock price plunge following a tweet from a Twitter Blue verified account that claimed it would make insulin uh, free? So Eli Lilly was an account with a verified blue check mark saying we're excited to announce that insulin is free now and so their shares dropped and which reportedly erased billions in market cap a little bit over reporting i didn't very briefly did and so then the real blue check checked account came back on and said no we're still going to charge loads of money for insulin you're welcome which is not the pr story they necessarily wanted <laughs> Sam, what, what have you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not the correction is it <laughs> don't worry folks you can still pay for insulin so it's it's one one, Karen and Alex, and this is our final question. So who appealed directly to Elon Musk for help after a hashtag trended? Sam, uh, R.I.P. <laughs> Sam, you're straight in. Oh, Go I have on. to get one right. Uh, this was Jimmy Fa- Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> Go on, tell us a bit more. I mean, the R.I.P. hashtag is nothing new on Twitter. I think Tony Hart has died about eight times over the past few years. Is Tony Hart still alive? He's not. No, no, he just, he, he, people just sort of announce his death sporadically and regularly. Oh. But what normally happens in a world with Twitter moderators on board, there would be some context under the trend which would say people are joking or XYZ, whereas obviously RAP Jimmy Fallon just ran and the numbers grew. 
So yeah, he appealed to Elon to see if there's any way of clarifying he hadn't actually died. You're right. You're right, Sam. I'm I'm sorry. I'm still reeling from the fact that Alex Alex has just learned that Tony Hart's died. <laughs> Look, there was that year where everybody died, and then no one could quite work out if yeah. anyone was alive or dead anymore, and no one believes anything. It's really confusing. Like that yeah that year where just everybody yeah. important died it it's skewed everything you're right sam it was uh, jimmy fallon which i think makes it a score draw between all three of you um i think that's probably my third or fourth tie since presenting the media podcast but well done to you all for getting one right and that brings us to the end of today's show just before we go can you tell our listeners where we can find your work and your comments on all things media. Karen, do you want to start off? Well, until it all goes belly up, you can find me on Twitter at KarenJR, K-A-R-I-N-J-R. And um, after that, who knows? Thank you. Sam, how about you? Similar to Karen, I'm still on Twitter. So at Sam Hodges, the perks of having worked there. meant I've got, got the username. <laughs> but um, yeah, so hopefully I'll be there for a while. We hope so too. And Alex, finally. Um, at Alex Huds, A-L-E-X-H-U-D-S, across all of them, TikTok. And I'm, I really want to make Be Real more popular because there's like five people who look at my Be Real. So anyone who wants to engage with them, be real dot whatever it is, <laughs> slash Alex Huds, A-L-E-X-H-U-D-S. But did you see this BuzzFeed story this week about Be Real revealing your location data? Like like seriously, like almost to the, the square inch. I would I never <laughs> post from it from my flat anyway, but wow. that's slightly terrifying. Maybe not. <laughs> Instagram, Instagram or Twitter, they're they're better. No social media is safe. Thank you so much to our brilliant guests and to you, our loyal listeners. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed today's show. To hear more from Fender Bailey and previous Deep Dive guests, consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com slash mediapod. You'll be able to access an archive of Deep Dive interviews with media experts. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. And of course, to help support the show, please make sure you've done two small things. Follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on a Friday. Subscribe to podfollow.com slash the media podcast and tell a friend or colleague about this week's show. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill and it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.